we're going to continue the pop quiz for today. Let's come and make our way to our seats. Please, somebody please tell me what passage of scripture we've been studying in Sunday school. Isaiah, good, good. We got it narrowed down. Isaiah what? 40 through, ah, not quite. 40 through 66, okay, 40 through 66. Does anybody remember what chapter we're in right now? Anybody can remember that? Close, 43, okay? You're very close, very close. Isaiah 43, okay? Now, continuing with our pop quiz, somebody, and we'll probably have to have a few and put them together by aggregate, somebody tell me, historically, what's going on, okay? Give me a historical snapshot of this situation so that we can better understand the words that Isaiah is using. I find, by the way, that being forced to put things in your own words is incredibly educational, okay? Because it just really helps you think through it, okay? So somebody please help me historically and tell me, tell me what's going on. Daniel Penner's got an answer. I'm ready, Daniel. Well, not just kidding. They are invading. Yes, you're doing great so far. Good. How far away is Babylon? Years. How far away is that invasion? Close. That's pretty, I'll I'll accept that. It's 75 to 100 years. Okay. And what is one of the primary comforts? Okay, so let's, let's review what Daniel just said. Assyria is kind of the bad boy on the block. God says, don't worry about them. Yes, they are the bad boys, but don't worry about them. It's actually Babylon that you have to be worried about. And they're going to be coming in 75 to 100 years. Okay. I mean, he doesn't say 75 to 100 years, but that's what we know historically. So, to prepare you for when that very bad thing happens in 75 to 100 years, let me give you some comforts. What is one of the comforts God gives them that we've been talking about pretty extensively here in Isaiah? We're doing good so far. Yes, sir. Yes. Oh, good. He will be there with them during that time. That's right. That's excellent. What else? The big one. This is the big one. Yes, Daniel. Okay, good. That's the distant one, but what's the nearer one? Okay. They'll be redeemed how? Yes, Dirk is right. They'll be brought back. Okay? There's a redeemer who's near and a redeemer who's far. Yes, I'm going to send you off to Babylon, but there's a redeemer who's near who's going to bring you back. And right now, he's an unknown person. And Isaiah's sort of working us to who the, the identity of that person. 
And then there's a person coming far who will deal with our ultimate problems. Okay? Does that make sense, everybody? Do we have that down? Okay? Be prepared. We might have this quiz again. Okay? Because it's really important that we keep ourselves oriented historically. Now, one question as we prepare to read this section. Okay, this is not Bible trivia question. How many of you have either had these thoughts or interacted with somebody like this? Okay, and I'm going to ask you to sort of fill this out for me. Okay? How many of you have either had these thoughts yourself or interacted with a person who thought this way of God? That God is like a really bad middle manager who refuses to be challenged, who refuses to be checked up on, who refuses to convey himself beyond a mere statement of his existence. That God's perspective is kind of like this. I'm not going to write it in the sky for you. You just gotta, You just got to believe me. How many of you have talked to people who have sort of that idea of or maybe you've had sort of that idea yourself. You can raise your hands. It's okay. I'm not saying it's you. You've talked to people like that? Okay, good. There's some people who are giving me confused looks. For those of you who've heard that, tell me what you've heard others say that sort of convey that spirit to help others out who are going, I'm not really seeing that right now. God helps those who help themselves. Well, I, that wasn't exactly what I had in mind, but fill that out for me because maybe I'm just not understanding. So hit me, tell me what you're thinking. Okay, gotcha. So yeah, it's, it's God is there, but he's letting humans be the main actor in this situation. Okay, that makes sense. Who else? Yes, David. Okay, that's, that's good. That all religions have a bit of truth in them, and um, we're all just sort of piecing together the morsels that God throws out and kind of following the breadcrumb trail. I've heard that. I've heard that before. And I, I could very much see that. Okay, what else? Who else has heard sort of this mentality? Yes, yeah, Steve. Okay, I can see that, very much so, very much so. How many of you have heard kind of a who knows approach? Like, you don't really know who God is, you can't know. Um, maybe they're right, maybe they're right, a little, a little along the lines of David's, but just a little different than that too. Nobody can really know, that's your interpretation, I have my interpretation, off we go. 
How many of you have heard that? Okay, good. I want you to know that God, in this passage, speaks to all of those. Okay? God's going to speak to all of those right here because God is actually a God who doesn't mind being challenged. Okay? God is a God who invites the challenge not to show people up, but to show himself off. Okay? If you were to say, I would like to go on a comparison, I'd like to go study the gods of the world religions and compare them with the God of the Bible and see which one is best, God would actually encourage you on that pursuit and would tell you, yes, yes, go back, go and look and see what they say, but also see what I've said, and I will gladly put my accolades on display for you to behold. Now, I'm going to go a step farther than that. Did you know that God is actually the one who calls that investigation to order? Okay. Do you guys remember 2007, the housing crisis? There were political recriminations from this side of the world to the other. And Congress, who created the problems, by and large, called massive numbers of people in to put on this investigation to see where the blame needed to be laid. Now, that was their goal, to get to the bottom of the truth, or so they said, right? In Isaiah 43, what God is doing, he's calling the council to order. He himself is calling the investigation to order. And he's saying very publicly, test me and see if I'm there. Test me and see if I'm real. Put me to the test and compare me to everybody else, and I'll promise you what you find will blow you away. That's what God is saying. Okay? In fact, Isaiah is a very reasonable prophet. In Isaiah 55, he says, come, let us reason together. God doesn't want us to check our brains at the door. He actually wants us to think through and reason with him and look to him. So let's pick up our reading in Isaiah 43, verses 8 and following. And we're going um, to see God call an investigation, call um, a convocation, a, uh, a, um, a court to order. Okay, verse 8. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. This is Isaiah's poetical way of saying, bring out all those people who worship false gods. Okay? Bring out all those people who worship idols. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. So imagine God calling all worshipers of other gods together into an assembly. And he says to this, who among them, who among them, who among you, you idol worshipers, can declare this and show us the former things. Let us bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it. It is true. Okay? God, here's what God is saying. We're going to talk about that verse 9. It's a challenging verse to translate. Okay? In fact, I'm just going to go over it now. The New Living Translation, which is a, uh, a paraphrase, probably captures it best. I'm going to read it to you. From there. Now, this is a paraphrase. It's not a word-for-word -word translation. 
but I think it captures it best, okay? Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. Now verse 9. Which of their idols ever has foretold such things? Which can predict what will happen tomorrow? Where are the witnesses of such predictions? Who can verify that they spoke the truth? So do you hear a much different tone there than maybe our translations have? And it's there in the original. These are very hard concepts to translate. Imagine if I were to say, because, you know, we're looking back on, on conversation that took place uh, 3,000 years ago. How would you translate to somebody that has never heard this phrase? Like my mother-in-law, she likes to say, ah, light has dawned on Marblehead. <laughs> light has now dawned on Marblehead. What's she saying? What's she saying? Anybody know? Yeah, someone finally gets the idea. Like, I've been telling you and telling you, and finally you get it. How come you didn't use any of the words I used? <laughs> because they wouldn't make sense otherwise. Or, or like my dad used to like to say, he would say, what's that have to do with the price of tea in China? Okay. What does that mean? What's he trying to communicate? It's irrelevant. You're missing the point. Now, what happens if you've never heard of China and you don't drink tea? Okay, that, that illustration is not going to mean anything to you. So how would you translate that? The, the ESV has translated this a little more literally and woodenly. And it would be like putting into Chinese light dawning on Marblehead. They'd go, I don't know what that means. Okay, so it does this verse. What God is saying is he's calling these people out and he's saying, which of your gods has ever foretold anything? Which of your gods can predict what will happen tomorrow? Where are the witnesses of such predictions? Who, what people have heard any of these gods speak? Who can verify that they spoke the truth? Okay, can anybody do that? So God is challenging them. And he would say to us, Get, gather all the prophets, gather all the priests of uh, Buddhism and ask them, what future has Buddha ever told? Go back and look at Muhammad and ask, did he always foretell the future correctly? No, he had many false prophecies. Or in our neck of the woods, Joseph Smith, did he always tell prophecies correctly? And the answer is no, not in your life. He didn't foretell the future correctly. And so God is saying, take a look at all these people and ask the question, did they do what I'm doing? He's challenging them. Now he changes the subject. Verse 10. You, however, you people of God, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Here's the conclusion they should draw. Before me, no God was formed nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. You know, I'm just going to call time out here, okay? I have notes, and I realize as I'm going through this that these notes are not the right way to teach this, okay? So I'm abandoning my notes, and we're just going to work through it verse by verse. Fair enough? 
okay? Because I think that's the best way to do this. Okay, so if I get a little stuck or confused, please know I've abandoned my safety net, okay? God says, you, however, don't have any excuses. You have heard me declare future events, and they came true. And in fact, I am declaring this future event, and it will be true. And the conclusion that you should draw is not that I'm a superior God to all the other gods. I'm not a God of your galaxy or something like that, and there are other equals to me out there. No, no. The conclusion that you should draw is the exclusivity of my existence. There is nobody else. Go to the gods of Buddhism. Go to the gods of Islam. Go to the gods of Taoism. Go to emperor worship. Go to animal worship. And you will see they can't tell you anything about the future. And when they've tried, they've fallen on their face miserably. But look at the claims that I've made. And what you will discover is that I'm the timeless one. I, I am the Lord. Before me, he says, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. God is not saying I was formed. What he's saying is quite the opposite. I wasn't formed. I only ever have been. And there are no other equals to me popping up anywhere else. I alone exist, and I'm proving that to you now by what I'm telling you of these historical events. Okay? He's going to go forward. Verse 11. Now, <clears throat> how many of you grew up playing the game Monopoly? Okay. Was your opponent getting a Monopoly a thing to be relished or a thing to be feared? <laughs> now, it was the one thing you were trying to prevent, right? In fact, in our culture today, if I said such and such has a monopoly on the market, would you assume I was saying something that was good or bad? Bad. God here is claiming a monopoly on the God thing. Okay? I'm it. I'm it. And quite contrary to our nature, which would assume that monopoly is a bad thing, God turns it in an unexpected, positive, amazing direction. Verse 11, I am the Lord. I'm the timeless one. I got a monopoly on this. And besides me, there is no Savior. Our only God, the only God, happens to be a saving God. He's not bent on destruction. He's not bent on comeuppance. He wants to save. He says in verse 12, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Now, this is the conclusion that God is wanting everybody to draw from this 
international assembly where he himself is on trial. Are there any other gods out there? Look and see what they've said. Talk to their prophets. Find out. Do an extensive study. And you'll realize I'm the only one who's accurately told you the truth. The other thing I'm telling you about me, I am almighty, I am all-powerful. When it comes to my people, my intent is to save, and I will save. However, in perfect harmony with that is God's justice and his determination to act. Those who stand opposed to him will regret it. He says, henceforth, I am he. If you resist me all your days, nobody can deliver you. Nobody can deliver you from my hand. I'm the only one who delivers from my hand. Don't turn to false things. They can't help you. They're not even there. They don't exist. Turn to me. For I will save you from my own wrath. I will save you from the judgment to come, which I will execute. God is being very clear. I work. Who can turn it back? Now, okay. God is now, now, what has he just done? He said, gather everybody up. Test me. Okay? Test me. Nobody tells you the future like I do. You'll see, when you study it, that I'm the only God, I'm the only true God, I'm the only Savior. Now, he's going to make a prediction. And this prediction is staggering. Look at verse 14. Thus says the Lord, thus says this timeless one, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. Who is being brought down as fugitives? Somebody tell me. I'm sending you to Babylon, and even they will be brought down as fugitives. Who are going to be the fugitives? The Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to be fugitives. I'm going to let Babylon conquer you, but I'm going to tell you something. For your sake, I send to Babylon, and I bring them all down as fugitives. Even the Chaldeans, which was another name for Babylonians, like we, we call ourselves Americans. Do we have another name for Americans uh, that we would use? Um, uh, a what? A U.S. citizen, something like that. Okay. Um, you would assume that if I called myself a Ute, that you probably wouldn't assume that I'm a member of the Ute tribe, but that I'm an American living in Utah. Uh, you, you could see that. Or if I called somebody a Uper, or a Michiganer, you would say, oh, they're the same person. You know, one's in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. You guys get what I'm saying, right? Okay, good. Um, you, you know, weirdos, you just immediately associate that with Californians. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing my California friends. <laughs> um, it's a joke. Anybody listening? Trying to be funny. I probably shouldn't try to be. Um, where were we? Oh, yes. And he says, here's the prediction. I'm going to make fugitives. I'm going to make them fugitives in the ships in which 
they rejoice. The nation of Babylon, their capital city, was situated on the Euphrates River. It's a rather landlocked area, but the Euphrates River is a big river. And it flows to, uh, out to the Indian Ocean and can flow out to the Atlantic Ocean. It can tie to both oceans together. The Babylonians took great pride in their river navy. It was a huge capital expense for the empire. But think about the money that came back to them from all the trade that they could conduct by sending barges up and down the Euphrates River. The ships became known all through the Fertile Crescent as Babylonian ships. If a ship came to you from afar and it had a very unique look to it and you learned, oh, that's a Babylonian ship, and then through the years you saw more and more of them, they began carrying soldiers, they began as the tip of the spear in an invasion, you would soon begin to associate those ships with an empire, wouldn't you? Well, God says these ships that you have come to associate as empire, these ships that these people take such great pride in, they're actually going to be used as prisons. They're going to be used as prisons for the Babylonians. Now, so you know, when the Persians went to war with Babylon, they dammed up the river Euphrates, and they sent their army under the wall. The river went under a wall that they'd built. They walked on dry ground under the wall and took captive all those people and used those boats <laughs> as prisons. Okay? Already got barges ready-made. Throw them in there. Pack them in there like sardines. Now, here's the thing. God says, God says, that's a pretty big claim, right? That's a pretty big claim. Imagine somebody coming along and saying, oh, by the way, um, one day, I'm trying to think of a good parallel. Um, one day, Peru will overtake the United States of America and use U.S. missile silos for prisons. You go, well, that's pretty specific. <laughs> and at this point in history, could you ever see that happening? No. That's the same level of shock that the people of Israel would have heard this prediction with. And so God says, fine, you want to know what I can do? I've actually promised bigger. Okay? He says, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, verse 16, and a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. What's he saying? He's saying, don't you remember from Exodus chapter 14 when I promised my people to walk through the water on dry ground and I promised that their chariots would chase you in and I promised that the entire army would be destroyed? When, when you were standing, when your nation was standing at the bank of the Red Sea and you had Pharaoh's army behind you, 
There was no way in your mind you thought I could perform that miracle, but I caused a wind, and you crossed, and those people followed you in and crashed with the water and destroyed them all. I did that. You see, God does make some big promises about the future, but he's always backing it with things that he's already done. And that's what God is saying here to the people. You think that's a big promise? Is it bigger than the promise I made prior to the destruction of Pharaoh's army in Exodus 14? Okay. And then he's going to go on. He says, but listen, guys, re remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. He's not saying don't use that as power to believe. He's the one who just brought it up. What he means is don't get stuck in the past. Don't get stuck back there. Look forward. Look ahead. Let the past be your guide to the future. I'm doing something new. And I'm doing this thing, and I want you to get behind it. Now it springs forth. You don't perceive it. I will make a way in the wilderness, the rivers and the desert, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they may declare my praise. Now, God is going to issue an indictment to these people. Okay? Are we tracking so far with everything he said? He said, look, I'm judging you because you keep following these worthless idols. So let's do this. Let's gather up everybody who worships a false idol, and let's compare me and them. And you'll see that their prophecies don't hold, and mine do. To prove it to you, I'm going to do something very unlikely in the future. Yes, I'm going to judge you by the hand of Babylon, but I'm going to judge Babylon. And you're going to be brought back. And you're going to be my people. And even though I've kept you in the past, and even though I will keep you in the future, and even though I'm keeping you now, verse 22, yet you did not call on me, Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. Not only, he's about to get even more specific, not only have you not brought to me what I deserve, he says, I've not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with incense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Okay. He's saying, He's referencing some pagan practices. Do you guys remember the story of Elijah, Elijah and the prophets of Baal and how they cut themselves? Pagan practices were onerous, time-consuming, expensive. God says, I haven't asked you to do any of that. I've asked you for very reasonable sacrifices and you haven't brought them. What you've done instead is you've wearied me with your sins. You won't repent. You won't turn. You keep turning to your own evil ways. But, verse 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. 
put me in remembrance, and now he's going to bring this whole courtroom drama to full circle. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. God is determined to judge these people for their sins, but should they turn to him, he will blot out their transgressions for his sake. Okay. How many of us, when we were brought to understand for the first time the gospel, the gospel of grace. Somebody said to you, Jesus wants to forgive you of your sins, and what you need to do is ask him to do it. Now, how many of you, your response was something along these lines? All I have to do is ask. Yes. And he'll just forgive me. Yes. It can't be that easy. No, it is that easy. There has to be something else. No, there can never be anything else. I don't deserve it. And that's exactly the point. You see, God is not forgiving you for your sake. It's not about you. God is forgiving you for his sake. God is forgiving you for him. So you say, I don't deserve it. He would say, I know. But for the sake of my reputation as a merciful, gracious king and God who saves, I'm giving it to you anyway. You would say, it can't be that easy. And God would say, what? If I added anything, I'd have to add everything. It's either free or it's everything. For my sake, I'll do it. And so we take it. We say it's not fair. It's not fair in the sense of we did fall short. We don't want fair. We want grace. And God is being so gracious and he forgives for his glory and for his reputation. And yet, we know from history, these people didn't listen, did they? They wouldn't take the offer. They kept sinning. And who came and took them away? Babylon. And who got conquered 70 years later? Babylon. <laughs> and Israel came back home. It happened to the letter of what God said. Because God has a future Redeemer coming who fulfilled all those promises to the letter. And he's getting us to look to that person who provides our ultimate deliverance. Make sense? Okay. One last thought. 
and then we'll dismiss. I was struck with this, and it was a conviction point for me as I studied it this week. So please understand that I'm saying this as a person who's been worked over a little bit by the Lord. Um, God sees things a little bit differently than we do. Um, God keeps account. God keeps account. And things that don't seem to matter to us really matter to God, and vice versa. And what we see here is a God, he justifiably, he's justifiable in asking how, what our actions say of our opinion of God. Okay, and, and, and he will say, how did that action communicate your theology? You know, so for example, Greg, why did you spend so much time on this thing of such little value and so little time on the person of such great value. And God will justifiably ask that, won't he? And that's, in a sense, what he's asking these people here. Okay? Haven't I been good to you? Haven't I forgiven you? Haven't I redeemed you? Haven't I told you in advance everything I was going to do? And yet you weary me with things that don't matter with meaningless things. So just keep in mind, ponder that, that that is how God thinks. And if you find yourself falling short, like I did, remember, God blots out our transgressions for his own sake, and he remembers our sins no more. And he wants nothing better than to draw you into loving relationship with himself. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Uh, this book, and for all that Isaiah says, we've got so much more to cover, and I pray that we would be captured in the end by the truth that we find here. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.